indeed. What a blessing. Good morning, Cape Bible Chapel. Good to be here with you. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here. Oh, and that's going to stay. Yay! So glad that you guys are here today. We're going to jump back in to our study in the Gospel of Luke, kind of build on the foundation that we laid last week. We talked about the reality that some of the promises that God makes in the Bible sound pretty ridiculous, don't they? Last week we saw that God sent the angel Gabriel to inform Zacharias that he and his wife Elizabeth, even though they were old and she was barren, they were going to have a son. They are supposed to name him John. And above that, he was going to be the messenger that Malachi had prophesied about 400 years earlier. He was going to be sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Now on the surface, that seems like a pretty radical promise, doesn't it? And we saw that Zacharias didn't believe in the promise, so he got to take a break from the talking for about nine months as a sign of the fulfillment of the promise and then also as a consequence for his disbelief. So join me in your Bibles, if you would, here today in the first chapter of Luke. We're going to walk through verses 26 to 38 today, and we're going to see God's going to send the angel Gabriel with another ridiculous sounding promise about another very important baby to be born. And this promise, honestly, is even a little more ludicrous than the promise of John the Baptist's birth to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Because even though they were old, and Elizabeth was really, really old, they were husband and wife. So through the course of, you know, natural husband and wife relations, God was going to do a miracle and allow Elizabeth to become pregnant when she'd never been able to before, even though she desperately wanted to. So that's a miracle because of their age and the fact that she'd been barren. But you've got to check out this plan that God comes up with today. I mean, this is way, way out there. This is where you go back to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 and go, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. Virgin birth, wow, that's outside the box. So this promise we're going to see today wouldn't be the first option for any reasonable person. It doesn't make sense logically. But God's thoughts and his ways are higher than mine. Thank the Lord. And so if you believe, like I do, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, it's 100% true, it's God's love letter to the people he created, it's a source of great wisdom, and, and you believe it's supposed to be interpreted literally, and supposed to take these things we learn and apply them in our lives, then we got to come up with an answer to that question we introduced last week. What will we do with the promises of God? What's our response going to be? What's this young girl, Mary, going to do? How, how will she respond to this absurd-sounding promise from God? Because let's be honest, there are plenty of times in our life when things are going real smooth, Things are just sailing along, and we're like, oh, yeah, man, I, I believe in God's promises. We'll hear like Deuteronomy 31.6, God will never leave us, forsake us. We go, oh, yeah, I believe that. We're just tap dancing through life. It's pretty easy to claim a promise, like the one in Romans 8.28. It says God works all things together. Not some things, not even only good things. He works all things together for good to those who love him. And when things are going good, that, that's great. We love that verse. We have a problem when we have to correlate that promise with James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Because there James informs us to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James doesn't say be joyful if you happen to run into a trial. He says when. Because that's the deal. We're, we're going we're gonna to have them. Here's the honest truth right now. You're either in a trial 
or one's coming. I don't know if that's real encouraging or not. <laughs> Glad to help you out there today. But, but that's the reality where we are. You're either in a trial or you're about to be in one. And thinking and praying about this passage in Luke, how it applies to our lives, how we respond to God's promises. It made me think about a verse that I really love that I didn't mention last week. But it's another verse out of God's Word with a really hard-to-grasp promise. And it's a verse that people struggle with a lot. And we know this because we misquote it. <laughs> this is probably one of them, the misquoted verses in all the Bible. And that's really saying something. Well, look up here on the screen. This is the promise that God has the Apostle Paul make in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He shares, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Okay, so the promise is God is faithful, right? But in the context, it's that God is faithful and that he will provide a way out. He'll provide the escape so that we can endure the trial and we don't have to fall into the temptation that's all around us. But is that how we hear that verse quoted? I bet you've heard that one misquoted before. And what do they say? God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never put more on you than you can bear. Seriously. <laughs> Just thinking theologically for a second, does that make any sense? If we could handle everything in our lives on our own, where's the need for God? And that really becomes a broad issue. It comes back to salvation. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't need a Savior, right? So it's categorically untrue that God won't allow us to be broken by circumstances or our bad choices or whatever thing it is that he wants to use to help us apply and understand Romans 8.28. Because God's greatest good for any one of us is that we'd be in a relationship with him and it lasts forever. And people who think they can save themselves will never accept this gracious offer from God to have that kind of relationship because they don't think they need saving. What would it be that would cause anyone to recognize they need to be saved? Well, we've got to let go of thinking we could do it ourselves. And the only thing that will bring that is brokenness and despair and trials and struggles and the things that James was talking about here that test our faith and lead to endurance. If you're like me, here's what I find myself doing in response to God's promises. I'm not saying this is wise. I'm not saying do this. This is just where I land tend to want to have God explain how the promise is going to happen. If you just walk me through the talking points, God, I'm pretty sure I'd catch on quick. I mean, you're God. I get it. You're the valedictorian, and I'm, I'm in the top 10% of the class. You're, you're on the varsity, but I'm on the JV. I mean, I'm no slouch, God. If you just tell me exactly how it's going to happen and, and what it's going to look like, then I'd be right there with you. I'd believe that promise. I want some kind of explanation or at least a summary. I don't need every detail. But give me the overview, and I'm there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you say you'll provide the way out. God, if you'd just show me every time what the way out is, I'd believe that promise. That'd be easy to believe. Reminds me of one of my favorite characters in any movie, Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. You've seen that movie toward the end. Our hero, Wesley, he's kind of been out of the loop for a while because he's been mostly dead. And so uh, <laughs> he gets revived, and his buddies have to catch him up. I all need to be on the same page with his partners. So see in this clip how an ego catches Wesley up. Watch this.
Why won't my arms move? You've been mostly dead all day. We have Miracle Max. Make a pill to bring you back. Who are you? Are we enemies? Why am I on this wall? Where's Buttercup? Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Buttercup is marrying Humper Denken in a little less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape. After I kill Count Rugen. That doesn't leave much time for dilly-dallying. You just wiggle your finger. That's wonderful. I've always been a quick eater. What are our liabilities? There is but one working castle gate. See, isn't that what we want sometimes? We just want God to explain to us, or at least sum up. If I got just a little more information, I'd be okay. And let me go on record here and say, this is where I think my desire there, my practice, is so foolish. <laughs> because most of the time in Scripture, God doesn't give an explanation. Because honestly, then we wouldn't need faith, right? God just says, hey, I'm God. <laughs> Trust me on this one. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I got this. In the Old Testament, God's friend Job gets hit with some deadly serious circumstances. He loses his family, his health, his wealth. And then he spends 37 chapters working through these various stages of despair and blame and, and bad counsel from his buddies. And every now and again, he'll stop and he'll recognize God's sovereignty, but then he'll want to come back and assert his own personal integrity. And, and I think what he's asking is, could you explain this, God? Or could you at least sum up? You know, why did all these things happen? How does all this work? What are you up to? And God's response to Job is amazing. It's classic. It starts in chapter 38, and he just says, were you there when I made, you know, all the stuff? And God goes on for the bulk of three chapters asking Job questions that he can't possibly answer. God doesn't explain. He doesn't sum up. But if you read the first 37 chapters of Job like I do, you kind of fall into that hope where God's just going to go, okay, okay, hold on. I'm going to explain everything to you. Let me tell you why I allowed those experiences. I'll let you in on a secret. But he didn't do that. Instead, God points to the fact that we're not like him. His ways are higher than our ways. This study in the Gospel of Luke has been so good to me, even these first two weeks, because I'm learning to trust more of that. And the beauty of Job's story is that Job still gets it. He still gets what God is up to from his response. He didn't really need the summary. God sounds pretty sarcastic, as a matter of fact, in his answer to Job. But Job understands he doesn't have to have God explain himself. Chapter 40 and verse 4, this is what he finally realizes. Job says, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you, God? He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. See, God doesn't have to make Job mute like he did to Zechariah. Job does it himself. He realizes, says, who am I to put blame on God? This is what I need to be reminded of because I find myself still asking God to sum things up for me. We see in chapter 42 of Job that because of how God works, because his promise is that he works all things, even in Job's case, and his circumstances seem brutal, God works all things for good. And we see that Job gets it. Because verse 5 of chapter 42 indicates this. Job shares, he says, you know, before all these trials in my life happened, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He's saying, I knew about you, God. But now, now that I've experienced these trials, now that I've been broken, he says, but now my eyes see you. And that's the good. 
Do we understand that from Job's story? That's the good that God wants for all of us. He wants us to see him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to abide in him, to have a relationship with him. And his promises in his word, however ridiculous they may sound, they give us the opportunity to respond. So how are we going to do that today? We're going to be like Zacharias last week, respond in disbelief and have to experience some consequences. They certainly won't thwart God's plan. He's still in control. But we'll experience correction along the way. Are we going to respond like this young girl Mary does? Because her story is amazing. So let's look at this passage in the Gospel of Luke, starting there in verse 26. Follow along with me, and I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Luke's done his investigation here, and he gives us some of the background information. These are, these are details that are important to the story. And so if we ask the observation questions, we'll learn right away when this has taken place. Luke says it's been six months since God allowed Elizabeth to become pregnant. And that's important because most likely, other than Zacharias, no one knows she's pregnant because Elizabeth went away to worship God and kind of be in hiding. Then we see that this same angel that got to share God's promise with Zacharias, he's being used again. And he comes and shares this ridiculous promise with Mary. We learn that Gabriel had to hop a flight to a little city called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was this tiny village, like on the way to places. It was not a tourist attraction. Nazareth was not going to be your destination. You might just end up there. If you traveled up the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and then you went straight north to Cana, Nazareth was just one of the stops along the way. It'd be like walking out of here and driving over to 55 and then getting up and heading to St. Louis. At some point in time, you're probably going to pull off and stop for gas and get a bag of chips and a soda or whatever, and then you're going to leave. You're not going to stay there. And that's Nazareth. That's the kind of place it was. Today, it's actually a decent-sized town. There's about 80,000 people who live there, 70% of them Muslim. But in Christ's day, I guarantee you could probably name everybody in the town pretty easily. I think the population was really probably closer to a few dozen than even a hundred. It was just a small rural town. Nothing big ever happened there. And we know this from its reputation. When one of the first disciples, Philip, went to go tell Nathaniel they'd found Jesus, he correctly identified him as Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel said? In John chapter 1, verse 46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He said, Nazareth, that's where we get big gulps. Seriously? That's where good things come from? Maybe so. It's also the home of Jesus, intentionally. It's a great place to be from if you value humility. And so Luke goes on, he introduces us to Jesus' parents. He mentions carefully that Mary's a virgin first, but then he drops some other information. She's engaged to a fellow named Joseph, who just so happens to be from the line of David. Now, we don't know a lot about Joseph from the Bible. There's some things we can know for sure. There's others we just have to conclude are probable from the time. We do know he's poor. He's a carpenter. He's from this kingly line of David. He's from this one-horse town. Those are the things we can know. The things we can guess, he's most likely pretty young. Because back in the day, it was really common for boys to get married like somewhere between 13 and 16. And I'm also going to guess he's probably known Mary for a long time. Because you've got to remember, this is a small town. And people in small towns know each other. And so maybe that gives us that picture, you know, that there was some kind of meet-cute moment where he bumped into her at the well when he was like six, and he's like, that's the girl I'm going to marry, you know, but we don't know that for sure. We can leave that for the movies. Here's what we do know. 
Joseph's working at his carpenter's job, and he's trying to scrape up enough money to get married. He says he's currently engaged. We need to spend a little time there because this is not engagement in the way we think of it. This is the biblical idea of betrothal. It means they were promised to wed each other. So at the custom of the time, they would have already had a ceremony, and they'd be considered as married without actually being married. Most scholars and theologians agree if they would have wanted to call off their actual wedding in the future, they still would have needed an actual divorce. There's one big thing that's different here. It's that Joseph and Mary would not have lived together. They would not have consummated the wedding relationship yet. That's the part that came after the actual marriage ceremony. But they're engaged. And I can only imagine that Mary's probably planning her dream wedding, right? Or as dream a wedding as they'd be able to afford. She's going to marry this young guy that she met at the well when she was six. She's all fired up. What else do we know about Mary? Now, I don't know if this changes your picture of Mary, but most likely she was in junior high or early high school, the way we would think of it. She, she was most likely in the neighborhood of like 12 to 16 years old, just like Joseph. Back in the day, girls could be betrothed as young as 12. They'd have to wait a full year. They could get married when they're 13. Does that change your picture of Mary whatsoever? Made me think about my daughter, Macy, this week. Macy's going to turn 12 next month. I had Macy sign a contract when she was eight that says she can't date till she's 20. <laughs> she's nowhere close to being betrothed, I'll tell you that right now. But, but today, I mean, if you're the parent of a young teenage girl, you're asking, hey, can I trust her with a cell phone? Can I trust her with a car? God's plan is to trust this young girl, Mary, teenager from the one-horse town, who is a virgin, to give birth to and raise Jesus Christ. In this passage, we're going to see that Gabriel indicates God has chosen her. So Mary becomes really, really, really significant in the Bible. I want to take just a minute and pause here and kind of make sure we're all on the same page with Mary. Because the things we can learn and know about her are the things we get from studying God's Word. It's the stuff we can learn from observation and interpretation and correlation and application. And there are some misconceptions that kind of fly around about Mary that we need to address. There are people who will hold to the notion that not only was Mary a virgin, but also Mary's mother was. So Mary's birth was equally as miraculous as that of her son Jesus. But there's no evidence to support that in the Bible. Some people will say Mary lived a sinless life. Again, we look to the Bible, we see that only one person ever <laughs> lived a sinless life on this earth, and that was the baby that Mary was going to carry, not her. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, we see Mary going to the temple to offer sacrifice. That's what sinners did then for the forgiveness of sins. So Mary was not sinless. There are folks who will contend that as Mary conceived Jesus through a miracle and she was a virgin, well then from that point forward she was always a virgin. But we see in the Bible she and Joseph had other children and there's no other mention of a miraculous virgin birth, just the birth of Jesus. There's some religious practices where people will pray to Mary and they'll view her as, as co-redeemer, co-mediator with Jesus. Again, God's Word tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So listen to me on this. Mary is super important in God's Word because of the grace that she receives, the role that God gives her. I certainly don't want to make too little fuss about Mary because we're going to see in, in this story her example of faith is absolutely incredible. But I also don't want to make too much of her. 
I don't want to elevate her beyond the position where God places her. Because Mary doesn't connect people to God. Jesus Christ does that. We shouldn't pray to Mary as if she was somehow dispensing grace. We're going to see in this next passage, she receives grace. Grace comes from God alone. So let's look and see how this plays out in verses 28 to 33. And coming in, he, this is the angel Gabriel, said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, remember, this really happened. This isn't fiction. This isn't the movies. Gabriel appears to Mary with what's got to be the most absurd-sounding promise ever. If we dig in here a little bit, I think we're going to learn some amazing things about Mary. See, Gabriel shows up, and Mary would have to be startled. Even back in that society, a man approaching a woman would have startled her. And so I think you want to ask right away, what would Mary's religious background be? I mean, does she even have any idea that Gabriel's an angel? Because most likely she was illiterate. Very, very few women were formerly educated back in the day. So she wasn't reading the Bible. Her only exposure to scriptures would have been the things that she had heard read when she was in synagogue. And so this statement that Gabriel makes throws her. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. That would be perplexing to her. And I don't know. Maybe Gabriel kind of summed it up. Maybe he walked her through it and explained, well, see, here's how it works. God has chosen you among all the women in the world. He's favored you. Maybe he asked, hey, Mary, do you remember hearing some verses about a virgin that was going to give birth? That's you. This is a beautiful thing. Because Gabriel says in verse 28 that Mary is the favored one. In verse 30, she's found favor with God. And that Greek word that he uses there, charis, is a word that we probably know because it's usually translated as grace. This is where Mary receives God's grace. This, this is God's unmerited favor. Mary didn't earn this. She didn't dispense it to herself. God gave her this grace. And so this describes how any one of us can be loved and embraced and saved by God. It's all grace. Do we think about that? If you're here today and you're a Christ follower, then Gabriel's words from God to Mary, they're for you as well. God calls each one of us favored one because we have found favor with God. It's grace. So here's this poor, uneducated, virgin teenager in this tiny little town. She's the favored one. God pours grace out on her. And Gabriel does the same thing here that he did last week with Zechariah. He tells Mary what she's going to name this child. He says, you've got to call him Jesus, which literally means God saves me from my sins. So Mary's son is going to be her Savior. that sound ludicrous enough for you? Here's this teenage girl face-to-face with an angel from God, and he's telling her, hey, listen, no, you're not married yet. Never been with a man, but you're going to have a baby growing inside your womb. And he's the one who will inherit David's throne. Your son will have a kingdom that will never, ever end. Can you really imagine how goofy that must have sounded to her? What would you say? I was thinking this week what I'd do. I sit in my office and study a lot. I never think about an angel walking in, making a promise to me. If he does, I hope it sounds less ridiculous than this promise. 
Do you think Mary's going to have some questions? Oh, yes. <laughs> but, but the question for us is, will she respond in disbelief the same way Zacharias did when Gabriel showed up to deliver God's promise to him? Look at verses 34 to 35. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Now, I really like that personally because Gabriel summed up for Mary. I like that. He didn't explain every step, but he threw out the big picture of how on earth something as absurd as a virgin birth could happen. And from the context, that seems to be the big question Mary has. Okay, how would that work? I mean, we can't see hearts, but for sure, Mary's response to this ridiculous promise seems different to me than Zechariah's response from last week. Remember back in verse 18, Zacharias wanted to know for certain how he could trust this promise. And he started detailing how it was going to be impossible. But Mary kind of seems to be saying, okay, sounds impossible. How's it going to happen? So this is where Mary has Zacharias and me beat. She just responds with such great faith. She didn't argue with Gabriel. We don't see her saying, hey, I don't know about angels, but maybe you guys don't understand this whole baby-making thing. I know I'm an uneducated teenager, but I don't see a lot of virgins giving birth to children. Do you understand this is going to be hard? We don't see Mary with a disbelieving spirit. She she just has an honest question. Let me be clear on this. There's no way God minds a good, honest question. He won't accept blame like Job was laying on him, but he loves the questions. He already knows our thoughts. He already sees our hearts. If we have questions, we need to go ahead and ask them because it's not like they're a secret to him. And I think that's the sense we get from Mary. I think she says, wow, that sounds incredible. How's it going to work? And that's a very good question. And so Gabriel responds. He sums it up for her. He says, it's going to be a miracle. You won't conceive in the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth did as a husband and wife. He says, no, the Holy Spirit is going to perform a miracle inside your body. You're going to carry the Son of God. You can almost see Gabriel saying, hey, I know that sounds impossible. Let me point out that God can do anything. And so Gabriel brings in another example in verses 36 and 37. He says, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Here's where I start to feel sorry for Elizabeth. Does she get any mention in the Bible where they don't talk about how old she is? Sad. You're not supposed to talk about a woman's age. But Gabriel has to mention it here. It's intentional because it's part of the miracle. Elizabeth was both barren and old, but God made her a promise. And so she's now in her sixth month of pregnancy because nothing is impossible with God. You want to stop just for a minute and evaluate that promise? Nothing is impossible with God. What's our response to that one? We ever said something like, it's over. My marriage is over. It's falling apart. We're so far apart. We don't agree about anything. I don't love them anymore. It's over. It's over. I'm done raising this child. They're so disobedient and disrespectful. I'm just throwing in the towel. It's over. Nothing is impossible with God. Do we believe that? Do we believe God can and did create everything out of nothing? Do we believe God can take an old barren lady and open her womb? Do we believe God can take a young virgin girl 
and give her a son, if we can wrap our mind around these things that we have accurate accounts of in the Bible, then can we move on to other things? Do we believe God can hear and answer prayer? Sometimes that seems impossible. God can raise Jesus from the dead. God can forgive my sins. God can call me to himself and invite me into a relationship with him through his son and his kingdom will have no end. There's nothing. There's nothing that's impossible for God. What's our response to that kind of promise? Does that sound just too ludicrous? Let's see what Mary's response is here. Look at verse 38. This is beautiful. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm blown away by that. I spent a long time in my office. I couldn't get over it this week. It's just the most remarkable faith. I mean, this isn't someone who's sitting there with all of God's revelation to her bound in a nice book sitting in her lap. She doesn't have God's word on her iPad. She's got a few bits and pieces of Scripture that she's heard in synagogue. She's hidden them away in her heart. And she has this amazing faith. We talked a couple weeks ago about godly decision-making. And one of the things I said we needed to do was be willing to count the costs. We need to have some vision of what the consequences of our decisions are going to be. Does Mary take the time to even think about those here? I mean, is she imagining the very first of what would have been an awkward conversation with Joseph? Comes home that day from work. He goes home. He gets showered up. He goes over to see Mary. Hey, how was your day? You go first, she says. <laughs> oh, you know, I finished the Rosenstein barn. Pretty normal day for me. How about you? Good news. <laughs> We're pregnant. I think Joseph would have had some questions. <laughs> and, and I can imagine her trying to explain or at least sum up. Yeah, honey, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. The angel Gabriel showed up while I was sweeping in the kitchen, and he said I was going to carry the Holy Spirit's baby. Weird, huh? I don't even know if I can imagine. I mean, that's being goofy, I know. But this is serious stuff. Can we stop and understand what Mary has just done to her life by responding with this incredible faith? Can we wrap our minds around the humility it would take? The things that she would be abandoning by making this statement? Because from now on, she's going to be viewed as an adulteress. And so by law, she could be stoned to death. But if that didn't happen, there was a provision in the law that said she could be taken to the town square, stripped naked, redressed in rags, and then left there to be verbally and physically abused. And then when they're done, they just leave her there, tied up, for a long time. As an example for other women, this is what happens if you're caught in adultery. If she's really counting the cost of her decision, these are the things, just some of them, that she said she's willingly going to give up her comfort, her security, her reputation, this wedding day she's planning with Joseph, she doesn't even pause. You know she's planning that wedding with Joseph. Young girls dream of their wedding day. We all do this. We all have dreams and plans that we make. And so often, I think we're guilty of asking God to just come alongside and bless what we want, don't we? We say, hey, this is a pretty good plan, God. Make this happen. But what if God changes our plans? What if God comes along and makes some changes? He gives us a rewrite. We don't like that very much, do we? Right here, God comes along and he gives Mary's life a brand new script and she responds, okay, 
I'll trust you, God. She indicates something so incredible. She says, I'm your bond slave, God. It's a phenomenally weighty word in Scripture. Luke uses the word doule here. It's the female version of doulos. It means a willing slave. The doulos is one who willingly put themselves under a master. This is how the Apostle Paul refers to himself so many times in the New Testament. I'm the doulos of Christ Jesus. And Mary's saying, I had these plans, God. I've been thinking about my wedding, but whatever you want for me, Lord, that's what I'm going to go with. I think this is so huge. Because we know and understand from God's Word, He had to grow up, right? He didn't pop out of Mary's womb as the 33-year-old son of God. That would be awkward. He was a baby. And then a child, and then a young man. He grew. We're going to read about this in a couple weeks. Jesus had to be about His Father's business, but He lived with Mary and Joseph. And he was subject to them. He was their boy. In Luke chapter 2, it says, Mary treasured teaching him and raising him. And verse 52 of 2 says this, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that's one of those verses, honestly, I'll sit and wrestle with for a while, and then my head hurts, and I go get a Diet Coke, and I just rest in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. How does God keep increasing in wisdom? incredible thing to ponder and so this week something amazing happened for me where God showed me something brand new in his word you love it when that happens a couple of passages I've read many times before this is what hit me I'm going to share it with you guys free of charge one of the most convicting things that Jesus shares in all of scripture for me is his prayerful response to his father in the garden of Gethsemane we see it in Luke 22 we'll be there in a couple years the context there Jesus is praying he says, Daddy, if there's another way to reconcile people to you, if there's another way to atone for the sins of the world without shedding my blood, now would be a good time to know because I'm up against it here. Then he says the most amazing thing. Let me not paraphrase this. Look at Luke 22, 42 up on the screen. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And see, we should marvel at that, and rightly so because of the humility that would take. But just ask yourself, here's what God showed me this week. At that moment, doesn't Jesus sound a lot like his mom? Because that's basically what she's saying there in verse 38. Mary says, I'm God's willing servant. Whatever he wants for my life, that's what I want. That's her response to this promise from God that she's going to be the earthly mother of Jesus Christ. She's basically saying, not my will, God. No normal wedding for me. No normal firstborn son. No, from now on, people are going to call me names. And people are going to question my story. And I'm going to live under this intense scrutiny for the rest of my life, but not my will. But yours be done. I think Mary's response is a wonderful example for all of us. I do. So let me close with this. We're going to have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together here in a second. Communion is such a wonderful ordinance that God has established for the church where we get to remember (laughs) that Christ was willing to shed his blood to atone for our sins. It's terribly convicting to me that I'd need to be reminded of that fact, but, but the honest truth is I do. Sometimes I act like I've forgotten the grace 
God's poured out on me. I've forgotten what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we're going to take the bread and the cup, and here in a second we'll have a chance to examine our hearts, confess our sins, and be right with the Lord. As Christ followers, that's why we participate in the Lord's Supper. So the praise team is going to come, and they're going to give us some response time to do just that. And when you're ready, if this is one of your first times here, the communion elements are on the table all around the room, and you can come and do that. Be one with the Lord. But if God's brought you here to the chapel today and you're not a Christ follower, you're wondering why he's got you here today, you've never accepted this gift of God's grace, his favor, then I think this passage, I think God's interaction with Mary through the angel Gabriel can be a phenomenal example for you today. Because in this passage, God reveals himself to Mary through Gabriel. And honestly, he reveals himself to us through his word. That's what we came together and heard today. God told Mary about Jesus. He tells us about Jesus. And God came to Mary to tell her about this new life that he was going to put inside of her. Really, God comes to us desiring to do the same thing. Now, you understand, it's not birth. We're not all going to be carrying babies. He's offering new birth. It's the opportunity to be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and perform this miracle inside of her, the Holy Spirit's real and waiting to perform a miracle inside of us. It's not something we can do. Physically, Mary was incapable of having a child by herself, right? She couldn't create life inside of herself. The same thing is true for us. If we don't know Jesus, we're dead in our sins. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. And so we need to respond to God's promises in faith the same way that Mary did, so we can have the Holy Spirit give us life. Well, how did Mary respond? She said, I'm your bondservant, God. Whatever you want for me, that's what I want. She basically said, not my will, but yours be done. And for any one of us to receive grace, that's got to be our response. We can't work for it. We can't try and earn it. We can't just try harder to be better. We've got to surrender to it. We've got to receive grace. We've got to be like Mary. We have to be willing to set aside our plans and take the plan that God has for us. So if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, I want to let you know that can happen today. It can happen right now. Because for every one of us, what's our response to the promises of God? We can all accept grace that is available, but we've got to respond. And so we're going to take that opportunity now. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to be together, to worship. God, if we're here as Christ followers, I pray that we are convicted by Mary's example of being willing to set aside her plans and say, I'm your bond slave, Lord. Whatever you want, that's what I want. I pray we could do that as individual Christ followers for your glory. But God, if we're here in your sovereignty, you've brought folks who don't know Jesus. Today is the day that we can say, I want to grasp what you're trying to teach me and show me and how you're drawing me to yourself, God. We understand that we're created by you, but we rebel. We're sinners. And because of that, we're unable to save ourselves. And you've sent your son, Jesus, born through this teenage girl in a tiny town. And he went to the cross and he took our place atoned for our sins with his blood. 
God, if we hear that, and we want to try and wrap our minds around it, it demands a response. Are we going to be willing to surrender and accept the grace that you offer us? God, work. We love you so much. We lift the bread and the cup to you. We thank you for the opportunity to remember the sacrifice of your son. God, we love you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.